as we kind of continue uh, our series that we're doing in the letter of 1 Corinthians, which Paul uh, writes to a, a church that he uh, had planted. And so today, we're going to be in, in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 5. But I'm very aware and understanding of the fact that for some of us, we are going to be very distracted during this service as we anticipate uh, the national holiday that is the Super Bowl. Right? Everyone, regardless of creed or nationality or background or whether you're a hippie or a poet, you all stop and watch football for this afternoon. Now, I watch football as many afternoons as I possibly can, much to the chagrin of my wife and my four daughters. My son's kind of into it. Uh, daughters kind of have to be now. Um, but I love watching football. But the Super Bowl is unique because every football game that, that I watch, I actually start about 45 minutes after kickoff, and I DVR the game so that I can fast-forward through commercials, certainly halftime, right? And by the time the fourth quarter comes along, there's a timeout or something different, boom, right through it, man. Let's get back to that action, okay? But the Super Bowl is different, right? At the Super Bowl, you don't fast-forward through commercials, right? Because if you don't like football, you're there really only for the commercials, maybe Beyonce, I don't know, right? But but this, the commercials are as much a part of the show as, as Kaepernick or Ray Lewis, right? So, I mean, for, for months and months, I, I, used to, I used to be in marketing back, back in the day, but for months and months, the greatest advertising minds, the most creative, the most culture-shaping um, advertising executives have spent hours and hours painstakingly and meticulously shaping 30-second messages that they have to pay $4 million to get on to, to the game for you to see, just to have your undivided attention. Because the reality is, these may be, with, with Netflix and DVRs, these may be the only commercials you watch all year long, right? And so, so they, they want your attention. And so they will even try to sell things like chips and cars and, 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 and cola and, and cheap beer and all that stuff. And, and the reality is, most of the products that they're selling, there's nothing new about them. There's nothing in, in inherently really uh, exciting about them. Um, but they are going to try to be so creative and memorable in their messaging that for a moment, you might think that light beer actually tastes good, right? You may even think that buying a web domain is even a little sexy, right? It's not, okay? Cheap beer, internet, not cool, okay? So... But, but yet these messages still kind of captivate us. And, and they even become part of our popular culture. Tomorrow morning, you are not going to talk about my sermon. But you will talk about a commercial at work that you heard or that you saw. And for the next year, it will be the most coolest relevant thing until it fades into obscurity. I'll tell you what I mean. Raise your hand if in the last week you've answered the phone with a hearty, What's up? No! If, if you did, that person hung up on you, right? Even just hearing that right now was assaulting to your ears. And yet that was the coolest, right, for like a little while, okay? There's nothing inherently powerful for that. For all the overwhelming amount of money spent, for all the creativity, for all the discussion generated, these messages have no power to actually um, impact our lives because the subjects that they're talking about are so underwhelming. And they're so powerless. And, and, and yet, sadly, they do compete for our attention. 
And um, whether it's a commercial or whether it's a film or a good concert or, or, or a movie or whatever it is, these messages uh, end up raising the bar for what we see as a great way to communicate. And so even if we hear something that sounds good or right or true, we consciously or subconsciously compare it to that new bar that's been set by the best creative minds in the world. And so we maybe ignore that message or see it as irrelevant unless somehow it captivates our attention or we find it uh, as exciting. And see, um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because as we're hearing from Paul writing to this church in Corinth, uh, in Corinth, this is one of the key issues that society had, that Um, As we look at the text today, we'll see that there are some serious challenges in the culture that Paul is dealing with in trying to communicate the gospel. We'll look at the centrality of Jesus Christ and him crucified as the key and center point of the entire good news of the gospel. We'll see that even with that, that sometimes fear and and trembling and and anxiety can keep us as, as individuals or as a church from sharing that good news with the world, and that the reason that God uses something so foolish as the gospel is to display his power in saving people. So if, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at these five verses. Probably have another 35 more snuck in there, so we'll, uh, a lot of Bible today. 1 Corinthians 2, starting verse 1. And I, meaning Paul, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Okay, so as we look into this text, what he's saying to these people and how it applies to us, we need a little bit of background. Okay, Paul, before he came to the city of Corinth, had been on a lengthy missionary journey to establish churches throughout a whole bunch of different Greek cities. And most recently, before he came to Corinth, he was in the city of Athens. And in Athens, public speaking and and speeches were actually a competitive sport in the city of Athens. People would gather together in stadium-like places to hear people debate one another. So guys that could debate well, guys who were witty, guys that that, uh, maybe were even a little nerdy in their speech were like pro athletes and rock stars. Man, my high school life would have been so different if Model United Nations and the debate club were cool. Like, I was in those things. I was good at those things. No cheerleaders show up to those things, right? So, but that's the way it was in Athens and and in Corinth as well. And so, um, public speech and and entertainment were so, uh, so much a part of the culture. And I think it's really difficult for us to even wrap our head around that idea because now, 2,000 years later, as advanced as we are, one of the most popular shows is Here Comes Honey Boo Boo, right? Where even people who are supposedly speaking English, we need subtitles just to understand what they're saying, right? This is, we do not, we're not quite the same when it comes to, to this kind of nerd culture that, that permeated um, uh, the Greek, um, Greek society. And so people were obsessed 
with either telling or hearing uh, any idea or wisdom that might seem new or cool or exciting. They, They weren't even really that concerned with how true it might be. And so Paul... Because the message of Jesus was still fresh in the minds uh, of, of society, it was a new concept, right? He gets invited to the Areopagus, which is, is called Mars Hill in Athens, to get to speak. It's like getting called to the Super Bowl, okay? And there's this crew of people all around him, and they are waiting on bated breath to hear what this Paul has to say. And he tells them about Jesus and him crucified, and they boo him and laugh him out of the joint. Okay, he's just, a few people kind of believe, but they didn't even want to raise their hands. Everybody else is like, who is this clown? And it's not because Paul was foolish or he came in there sounding like, you know, um, Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right? He's just, he's varsity. Paul's varsity. But this is the pros, right? And any varsity high school football player goes up against Ray Lewis or any of the guys uh, playing today, he's going to get rocked. So Paul gets rocked. His confidence is kind of shattered, and so he comes to Corinth where they kind of have the, 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 the same culture of words. And so when he comes in and, and sees this and, and didn't really have any success, and he sees that Corinth is intoxicated, again, with, with fancy or great-sounding words, that they don't even care how true it sounds. Think for a second of what, get, if you get your news from, like, the Colbert Report or uh, John Stewart right? Sounds hilarious. I love watching that, and it's rarely ever true in any way, shape, or form, but it sounds so good. And that's where where Paul's coming in to Corinth. And so when he comes in, he says, okay, I can't compete with the popular culture of this town. I I, I don't really have anything that is so so clever, so funny. And so um, he just said, I'm just going to preach a simple and clear message of salvation. And so people are either going to believe it or they're not. And you see, this is, um, this is powerful because, see, Paul, he didn't try to be cool or relevant. He just focused on being true and right. See, I, I, I'll be honest. I think this is a struggle for us as Christians in, in this world. Or, or even, even churches at large. I know personally it really is for me. I have good friends of mine uh, from college who do not know or, or claim to know or love Jesus, who, who have run, helped run successful presidential campaigns. They are, some of them um, have great careers and, and, and are great and savvy at business. Some of them are just hilarious guys. And when they come at me constantly, and it seems like the more and more I preach, the more and more I get emails from them or, or kind of just pings that just feel like dripping faucets on your forehead, that, that I'm like, you know what? I know these guys' language. I'm just going to, you know, I'll be just as sarcastic as they are. I'll be just as intelligent as they are. I'll just try to, you know, hey, they, they think they're being witty. I'll be witty, and, and maybe I can convince them of, of the truth of, of what I believe. And it has absolutely no effect. I can't compete with a guy who's running a presidential campaign, okay? I mean, I made it through public school all right, but, you know, I, I'm certainly not at that level. And I can't, um, you know, debate these guys that are, that are you know, they're, they're worldly brilliant. And so eventually I just, I had to stop and say, okay, I'm just going to preach what I know. I'm just going to tell you what I know clearly from the Bible. I'm going to quote it for you. And they just, you are even more and more foolish. I'm, getting, I'm not getting laughed out of the Mars Hill, but I'm certainly getting laughed off email and Facebook, right? So we can't as Christians 
ever assume that we're going to be able to make the gospel cool. Okay? We can't wait for a TV show that portrays Christians in a better light than like Seventh Heaven. Okay? Right? There's, there's nothing inherently cool about Christianity from a popular culture standpoint. And when we try, and we try to make a movie, we put Kirk Cameron in it. He hasn't been cool for decades, right? And we're like, why doesn't everybody think we're awesome? And then, and then as, as individuals, right, we just, we, we want to be accepted so much by the world around us when, and I'm not saying we need to try to be awkward. You know, like, Paul, or like Sam said last week, we are good at being weird and awkward, okay, on our own. We don't have to try, okay? So let's just be who, who God's called us to be. And let's not try to, I don't want to say not engage with culture, but just understand we can't compete with that. But what we have is, is something different. So as well, um, you know, for a world that is fascinated with what the new and next best idea is, right, as soon as iPhone 5 comes out, you're already thinking about iPhone 6, a 2,000-year-old message is never going to be cutting edge. Okay, so we just have to take a step back and, and stop from the insanity, right? Like churches, we don't need to have fear factor sermon series to try to attract people, right? That show's old too, okay? Stop being cool and let's just be true and timeless. So Paul's competing with kind of that same thing in Corinth. As well, he's competing with a very hostile religious environment, okay? Corinth, Athens, uh, this Greek culture, they were not uh, inherently open to Christianity, just like our culture is not inherently open to Christianity, Paul alludes to this in verse 1 when he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That word testimony actually can be translated as mystery. And why that's important is because um, the Greek popular religions were what were called mystery religions, where only the initiated or only the high class, only the societally rich could end up knowing the secrets to eternal life. And then once they were initiated into these secret religions, there was pressure on them to not reveal those secrets to the masses. And see, those religions are, are very attractive to those who are uninitiated, right? And we love secrets. We love mystery, man. What's behind the curtain? I wonder what they do in that temple. I wonder what's in that room. I wonder if I just pay a little more, serve a little more, give a little more. I can, I can know what, the, what that guy who's been here longer than me knows. We have that today. We have like Scientology, right? We have Mormonism. We have even, even Freemasons or even, even my fraternity where the key rituals, the key doctrines, the key practices are all veiled in secrecy with the hopes that maybe it might be a little more attractive to people who just kind of want to know mystery. Even within the Christian church, we now have uh, theologians uh, and, and groups and, and, and individuals who are so consumed with the idea of what is mysterious and unknown about God that that's all they focus on. And they, and they, they kind of forget or, or, or minimize the things about God that have been made true and plain and clear in God's word. See, there's nothing wrong with, with mystery. There's certainly even nothing wrong with questioning. But you better want to solve that mystery. You better want to find an answer. And, and, and some mysteries and some answers have been solved. Paul's about to tell them very clearly. This mystery, this what you're wondering about salvation, being saved from your brokenness, having eternal life with God, that's not something I'm going to hide from you. I'm going to tell you plainly. 
And so he goes on and, and he says, um, you know, they're not going to have any hoods, no secret handshakes, no weird temples or rooms. I'm just going to know nothing, he says, among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's nothing hidden here at our church. We just say the same thing each and every week. And so Paul, um, as he comes in and we look, like I said, at verse 2, he's not going to compete with these big shows of public speaking because he's just not as cool as they are. And he doesn't have a big temple or some mysterious building or, or rituals to try to attract curious people. Um, so, but he did practice ministry. And the key thing that he practices, says in verse 2, is he was among people. Paul's a single guy, but he's not just yelling at randoms on the street or blasting away at Facebook. No, he's living with other people in their homes. He's working jobs alongside people, telling them about the gospel. He's having people over for dinner. He's going into public squares. He's engaging with people, and he says, I was among you. For those that actually ended up coming to to faith in Christ and forming that church, he's reminding them, even as he writes, I know you. I was with you at the hospital before you went into surgery. I was with you giving you a meal when, when you had a baby. I was with you when you found out your kid was diagnosed with a disease. I was with you when your marriage was crumbling and, and, and we were here to pray with you and counsel you. He loves these people because he knows these people. He has a real relationship with these people. We can't compete with mystery or with popular culture where we can engage people with real, true, and loving relationships. And so he, he goes on, and he says that um, while he was with them for a year and a half, he was preaching, he was teaching, he was discipling, and he focused exclusively on the facts and the implications of who Jesus of Nazareth was and what he accomplished on the cross. See, this is, again, very key for us as, as Christians or us even as, um, as a church, that there is so much wisdom in God's word, okay? You want to know about finances. You want to know about your marriage. You want to know about sexuality. You want to know about raising your kids. You want to know about how to succeed in business. You want to know about how to, to engage people politically. It's all right here. And for the world, yeah, some of it's controversial, but some of it they may be able to accept and say, yeah, I'm on board with that. I had a good friend of mine who, when I started uh, going to a church um, with, uh, uh, with Tara when we were dating, he's like, wow, Tara's good-looking. I'd like to have a, a good-looking wife, too. Where'd you find her? Oh, at this church. So he came to church. And he's like, hey, there are other good-looking girls there. And, and he's hearing the pastor preach. And he's like, man, I love what that guy's saying about being a man and leading and leading his family. That sounds great. And then the next week, another pastor came up who didn't quite sound as flashy. And all he did was just preach the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. My friend's just like, what was that? I'm good with the be a good guy. I don't need Jesus. Okay. Paul doesn't come in and bait and switch his church and say, let's do a series on sex and see who wants to show up and talk about that. He just says, nope, I'm only going to teach you the cross. Now, we, and he's there for a year and a half, we can, should, and will spend a lifetime unpacking the implications of what Jesus Christ and him crucified means for every aspect of our lives. But that's all there is. And so he, he, that's what he, what he leads with. See, he says that that's the only thing, that's the only purpose he has, is to preach the good news of the gospel. See, that's why we don't even assume 
when we say the word gospel, meaning good news, that we know what good news is. And so every week, somebody gets up and we preach and we say, yes, in the beginning, there was a God who created everything, including man in his image and made it good. And then man, by his rebellion, by his sin, sin enters the world and all of creation is broken. Man's relationship with his God, with creation around him, with other people is fatally broken. And the world's been in a state of decay. Every single person born will die. Okay, this is not good news yet, right? But then God gives hope and says, yes, I am sending a Messiah. I am sending a Savior who will come and who will conquer Satan, sin, and death and restore that broken relationship. And then we see, 2,000 years ago, God comes as a humble baby in Jerusalem, or Bethlehem, rather, and, and spends time in Jerusalem. And he comes and he lives a perfect life of sinless obedience that every single one of us has failed to live. And then, in the greatest injustice in the galaxy, a Roman cross hangs that perfect man and he dies that excruciating, painful death that each and every single one of us in this room and in this world deserves for our sin. And in doing so, he redeems a people. He reconciles a people to God for those who have faith in him. And three days later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he raises again spends 40 days with his people, with people that didn't know him, with hundreds and hundreds of witnesses before rising up and ascending into heaven. And he says, I will return. Only this time when I return, I won't be humble. I will be in glory. I will have king of kings tattooed on my legs. And I will enter in a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth where there's no more sickness, no more sin, no more broken relationships, no more sadness, no more tears. And God and his people will be united in perfect relationship forever. That is the gospel. That should be more exciting to us than a touchdown or a really cool chip commercial. And yet, it's foolish to the world. It's absolutely foolish to the world. And so, at the center of this gospel, though, is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That Jesus Christ is in our place on that cross, dying for our sins, and that because of that, our sins can be and are forgiven. And because our sins are forgiven, we can have freedom from our sins, so we don't have to walk in constant sin or or addiction. We have the opportunity uh, for obedience. And that because he rose again, there is a promise of a new, perfect body and eternal life without sin with God. And I don't want you to trust me on this. I really don't. I want us to rely on God's word here. So Philippians 2, uh, 8 through 11 says, And being found in human form, meaning Jesus, God, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. goes on in Colossians 1 and says, For in him, being Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
as assaulting as a man dying on a cross is to our sentence, to our senses rather, it brings peace, wholeness, restoration. Peter says it this way in Acts. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, meaning Jesus, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No Allah, no Vishnu, no any other prophets, just Jesus. And Jesus, if you don't believe the apostles, you don't want to believe them, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, that is offensive to a world that wants universalism. That is offensive to a world that will not tolerate exclusivity. Jesus is absolutely exclusive. And so that's easy to say. Christ crucified is simple to hear, but it's also easy to reject as foolish or offensive. Because for most of the world, that's just not attractive. See, Paul, he doesn't attempt to establish any other foundation for salvation than Jesus Christ and him crucified because he knows to do anything else would be absolutely worthless. He doesn't... Let me say it this way. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Let that sink in. If Christianity is false, it's of no importance. He goes on to say, and if it's true... It is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So when Paul says, I want to know nothing but Christ crucified, he's saying, I want to know the only thing that applies to everyone. That is powerful. See, he didn't give them tips to have a more successful life or to be a better person. He simply says, I'm going to give you Christ and him crucified. Know that there is a lot of preaching out there. We have television, radio, internet, podcasts, whatever else. Tons and tons of preaching out there. But know that the only thing that has power is true Christian preaching. And that doesn't have the goal of making you a better person. It has the goal of pointing you to a better God. Not yourself, but Jesus lifted up in heaven, in glory. That is why we preach. That's why we gather. That's what we lead with. And it's powerful. And yet we'll go on. We'll, we'll, we'll look at verse 3 and see, see, even despite all of that, Paul says in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Why? He's got Christ crucified. That's a, that's a big deal, right? Can we, well, maybe we can't agree on that. But he comes and he has some humility with his church. See, he says, even that he's an experienced and effective church planner, he's on a second kind of big multinational missionary journey, and, and yet he says he has fear and trembling, and he's anxious and, and weak. One commentator I read actually said, Paul is not afraid of people or anxious of people. He's just really excited and anxious about getting on with the job of planning the church. I call shenanigans on that, right? He, if you don't know Paul's life, Every single town he's been to, he's been beaten. Riots have been started because of him preaching the gospel. He's been brought before judges. He's been thrown in prison. We just said the last town he just came from, he got booed out of. By the time Paul comes to Corinth, he's alone. There's no team with him. He's by himself. By God's grace, he finds one couple that says, Yeah, Jesus, we're good with Jesus. 
sleeps on their couch for months, right? Just, just you, you know that guy. If you have that guy on your couch now, he's not Paul. Kick him out. Um, but he's sleeping on a couch, and he's just working a Joe job. He's a tent maker, which in that day was about as cool as it is. This day was just, honestly, it was an unskilled laborer that had no social status at all. I have to imagine he's a little intimidated because Corinth was just as exciting and just as, as, as interesting as, as Athens. And, and he starts preaching in the synagogue because he has a Jewish background. And they, and they kick him out. And he's like, where am I going to go? What's next? He's not an impressive guy. Actually, it says, um, he even says himself in 2 Corinthians, he goes, yeah, I've heard you talk about me. You say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. I got to read a um, second century history that says, Paul's a man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, meaning overweight, with eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked. Okay, even in the second century, unibrows did not look good. Okay, but that's that's who Paul is. This is nothing cool about Paul. And so fear has crept in. Doubt in his calling has, has kind of crept in. And so he's weak and he's uncertain. And the guy just needs some encouragement to keep going. And if you would, um, we see in the book of Acts, turn with me if you would. Um, so it goes Gospels and then, and then um, Acts. Acts 18 talks about Paul being in Corinth. We're going to see that he does get some, some encouragement here. So starting in verse 7, it's where he's gotten kicked out from the synagogue. It says, He left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So when things are beginning to look nearly hopeless, it actually says earlier in this chapter that Paul's ministry buddies, Timothy and Silas, have actually rolled into town. So now Paul has a bit of a crew. He's got some brothers in arms, and they're, all right, let's go charge this hill. He still gets kicked out of the synagogue, right? Things aren't going well. And so then he meets a very wealthy Roman who owns a house next to the synagogue, right in downtown, a big house, who says, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. In fact, I've kind of wanted to host a a small group at my house, maybe even a house church. Paul, do you need a place to meet? Sure. No synagogue? No problem. He's got Titus' house. And then one of the, the, the synagogue's leaders says, actually, yeah, me and my family, we, we love Jesus too. I'm going to walk away from everything I've known my entire life and, and, and come and be part of this new church in Corinth. And, I mean, and that guy, I mean, he's so influential. He kind of handled all the details of everything that happened in the synagogue. If I'm Paul, I'm making that guy head deacon, saying, yep, you're running the finances, you're running all the ministry structures, you're running uh, all the organization. Whew, man, now he's got some help. So Paul can just keep preaching. Oh, and his whole family comes too. And now people are hearing the gospel And they're being baptized. And what that means is they're saying, no, my previous mystery religion I was a part of, I'm renouncing that. That's dying in the water. I'm rising again, uh, coming out of the water, and I'm following Jesus from here on out. That is incredibly exciting 
for a pastor. Nothing is more exciting for a pastor when things are wary or things are tough than new people coming in saying, yeah, I used to not love Jesus, but now I do. I want to be baptized. It's glorious. And to top it all off, Jesus comes to Paul in a dream and says, they're out there. My people are out there. And they are desperately waiting, Paul, for you to preach the gospel, to, to, to make them. They are asleep. They are in bondage. They want to be awake, and they want to be free. And they're waiting for you, Paul, to preach the gospel. So just keep preaching. Just keep preaching. Just keep preaching. See, I know personally pastors who have worked for a couple years at Starbucks while their church is growing through great difficulty. I know other pastors who have been city bus drivers just to keep their church's doors open. Every single pastor at this church at one point has worked full-time in a job while serving here at the church. Why? Because even when there seems like there's no fruit, even when it seems like growth is slow or tedious or there hasn't been anything exciting happen for a while, there's that promise that each and every one of us has that Jesus says, my people are out there. Keep preaching. Keep going. Keep telling. In fact, Nothing can even harm you, as difficult as that may sound or seem. Nothing can even harm you because they're waiting for you. You want mystery? You want adventure? You want to find out the unknown? Start telling people about Jesus and see who responds. They're out there, and they're waiting for us as a church. They're waiting for us as individuals to reach out to them with the love of the gospel. And see... This is why, even with fear, fear can be so powerful to us. See, fear can be used as a tool by the enemy to say, no, Christian, be quiet, be ineffective, stop telling people about this gospel, it's not worth anything. Or, fear can be a tool used by God to say, no, you're right, you're powerless, Paul, to change anything, but my people are out there. And I will change them by using you for the gospel. That is exciting. And so we have this, Paul even says that even in weakness is a great thing. In 2 Corinthians, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. God talking to Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults. Hardships, persecutions, calamities, certainly worse things than, you know, being defriended on Facebook or bad emails. He says, for when I'm weak, I'm strong. See, Paul knows his limitations in planning a church. But he also knows in the providence of God to make churches be planted, grow, for missionaries to be sent to places that are difficult and for people to have joy even with that. See, Paul's talking to a church in Corinth, a world away almost 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years later, in an old pharmacy, a former fraternity rush chairman is telling you the same thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. How did we get here? It was because generations and generations of faithful Christians set aside their fear, relied on God, 
and said, I know his people are out there. And they went, and they went, and they went, and they told, and they told, and they told. And because people love Jesus, and because people love other people, they tell them about Jesus. See, the only reason each and every one of you are here in this room this morning is because somebody knew you enough and cared about you enough to say, come. And somebody loved Jesus enough and to saw Jesus is powerful enough to say, I think he can change you. I know he can change you. You might be one of his people. The only reason you're here is because somebody loved Jesus and loved you. The only reason 2,000 years from now people are still talking about Jesus is because people love Jesus and love other people. That is what we do as a church. And he goes on in verse 4, and he says, that, And my speech and my message were of no plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. See, this church in Corinth, even Christianity for a millennia and, and, and across continents doesn't grow and flourish because Paul or Christians became better speakers or more savvy marketers. No, see, people weren't convinced to follow Jesus just because, oh, this gospel makes sense. See, it is an absolute miracle if anyone thinks that a guy dying 2,000 years ago was God and that him dying on a cross has any real and lasting impact on your life today. And it certainly is a miracle if that fact, that event, changes the entire course of the history of the world. And so something else has to be at play. It can't just be, oh, here's somebody that's reading some words out of a book. Here's somebody that, that um, uh, you know, has some theological knowledge or understanding. Oh, here's somebody just telling us about a historical event. Something is at work if people's lives are changed. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. If the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, even for an instant, makes any sense to you at all, that is the Holy Spirit at work in your heart, changing you and moving you from slumber to being awake. I heard a guy after first service say, man, the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, the gospel makes no sense. But with the Holy Spirit, and once you finally hear the gospel, it's the first time the world makes any sense. It was Charlie Brown. I'll give him credit. It wasn't me. Okay, so, so, but you hear that, right? That the Holy Spirit has to be working the hearts of people. If the gospel is to be believed and rejected, if the cross is going to be seen as beautiful and not shameful, if, if people's lives are going to be changed, if individual hearts are going to be saved, if bodies of believers are going to do things like plant churches or go to foreign countries, it's going to be because of the power of the Holy Spirit sending them and continuing the mission of spreading the gospel. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians. Our gospel came to you not only in word, did use words, he was clear, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. My favorite old pastors, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, actually named my daughter after this guy, um, says a sinner, meaning all of us, can no more repent, turn away from sin, follow Jesus, and believe without the Holy Spirit's aid that he can create a world. That is an impressive statement. We need the Holy Spirit. And God links the good news of the cross of Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate that his power is the only thing that can accomplish anything. And so Paul, in writing this, wants to remind his church 
and remind our church to keep our eyes open, to see the Holy Spirit at work around them doing things that do not make any worldly sense without the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you what I mean. In this church, this church right here, there are people who grew up worshiping and serving and being parts of cults that heard the gospel and didn't, as the world would say, become an atheist. But no, they renounced their previous religion, said, I'm going to serve and follow and love Jesus. And some of them have even become pastors. And there have been uh, even other people who, who um, uh, are in marriages who are marred by infidelity or are defined by addiction. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, where the world has told them your marriage should end, you should go your separate ways and pursue your individual happiness, have by the power of the Holy Spirit come together, confessed sin, been reconciled to one another and to their God in heaven, and now have joyful, loving marriages. There are men who have been sleepwalking through their family lives, who have heard the gospel, and all of a sudden by the power of the Holy Spirit, want to sacrificially love their families and lead their families and are now serving and leading even within this church. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who had been for years in the shroud and darkness of hidden sin and by the power of the Holy Spirit confessed that sin to their brothers and sisters, came out of that sin, and have now spent their lives telling other people to avoid those sins or to help them out of those same pits they found themselves in. When the world says, no, be ashamed, be quiet, just keep struggling. And yes, there have even been people who have, who have taken away their identity through their sexuality and have said, no, where the world tells me to celebrate this, I will take off my identity and I will celebrate and identify with Jesus Christ and him crucified and everything else comes second. That is foolishness to the world. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Even the fact that we have a place for our church and our core group to gather in Snohomish is because faithful Christian leaders in that town said, no, I'm not as interested in, I'm not as interested in my territory or in, or, or in my uh, growing my church or my uh, ministry. I believe in one Jesus, one spirit, one gospel. And so, yes, you can come and meet at our church after we're done with our services. Different leadership, different names, different sermons, all preaching the same thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That makes no sense to the world. Okay? You want to open a new coffee shop here in Marysville? Try going over to Venacio's and asking them and saying, hey, would, can, after you're done at 8 o'clock closing up, can I then come in, use your espresso machines, brew up a bunch of coffee, have some brownies and donuts, and have people come in here? I know the owner. I don't think he'd say yes. He's a really nice guy. Go to Venacio's. They're great. But the reality is, you go to Starbucks, you go to anywhere else. No, that makes no worldly sense. But we're not in business. We're not following the world. We are celebrating and worshiping Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul closes, and and, and I'll close uh, with this. He says in verse 5, there's a reason he didn't come in lofty speech, and that he didn't come trying to convince them. He wanted the Spirit's power to be demonstrated in verse 5, so that your faith 
may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, he wants us to place our faith in something that can actually provide lasting joy and genuine, he says, rest. He wants us to exhale. We don't have to be on pins and needles. He wants us to rest our faith on, on, on things that don't depend on intellectual reasoning or clever messaging, or emotional manipulation, or even moving experiences, because he knows that at any time, that faith is so fragile, it can be demolished by anything that looks or appears better, or stronger, or more convincing. I'll tell you what I mean by that. I experienced this actually very personally um, just a, a few weeks ago, uh, Christmas time. I got to have the honor of getting to preach on December 23rd, and I got to preach about J- baby Jesus coming to the world to, to live that perfect life, to die that death we deserve. It was glorious. We we're all singing Christmas carols. This place was packed out. Y'all brought your family. They haven't come back since. Um, sermon must not have been that great. Um, and so, so I'm there, and it was great, and it was exciting, and I'm driving away, and I am fired up for, for the church, for the gospel to celebrate. And then I get a phone call from a really awesome member of this church, I'll say. And he goes, hey, Chris. Got two free tickets to uh, Seattle, San Francisco 49ers tonight at the uh, at Central. Like, do you want to go? They're free. Well, I got dinner with my in-laws, but sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put that on the table. We'll go for the Hawks. And as excited as I was, a few hours later, I'm in a stadium with 70,000 people who for three hours didn't sit down, didn't stop raising their hands in praise, didn't stop screaming and yelling. And what I was seeing was a team that may win the Super Bowl today getting pummeled by our Seahawks. And it was glorious. And everyone was rejoicing in praise. And I thought for a second, oh my gosh, if any one of those people were at that game and then came to our awesome church service, they'd be like, your God's kind of lame. People are asleep. Our God's awesome, except when they lose to Atlanta, right? See, we can't compete. After you walk out this door, if you even remember anything from this sermon, within a few minutes, you'll turn on the radio, or you'll turn on the television, or you'll have a conversation with a friend, or you'll have an emotional experience, you'll hear a better speaker, and none of this will make sense to you any longer. But Paul says, that's not what our rest is in power of the Holy Spirit, paired with the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified, is so infinitely powerful that no more emotional experience or great speaking or excellent presentation can overpower that. And that is where we rest in. So I'm done. Because if that gospel and that Holy Spirit doesn't change you, it's not on me anymore. I don't have to compete with the world. But what's going to happen now is I'm going to pray. We are going to stand and we are going to sing like fools. We are going to give like fools whose faith is not in the world, but is in the power of Jesus Christ crucified. And if you believe that gospel's moved you, you're going to come forward and you're going to remember Jesus Christ crucified, his body broken for you by eating some bread, his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins by taking some of the cup. And you'll go live lives. Thank you.